Hello, I'm Jackson Michael of The Game Before the Money. As you likely know by now, The Game Before the Money is a national weekly radio show on the SportsMap Radio Network. You can hear that on your SportsMap Radio affiliate, the SportsMap Radio app, and at SportsMapRadio.com. The show airs at 10 a.m. Central Time every Saturday. That's 11 a.m. Eastern. This is a copy of the show that aired on August 6th, 2022, and this is the program in its entirety. Thanks as always for listening. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. All right, welcome to the show. It is Hall of Fame weekend. The preseason has also kicked off. We're going to celebrate with a huge show, including... An interview with 2022 Pro Football Hall of Fame inductee Dick Vermeil. Coach Vermeil is going to talk about rebuilding the Eagles. He's going to give us great insight into the 1980 NFC Championship game that sent the Eagles into Super Bowl 15, including a story about what a fellow Hall of Fame coach, George Allen, told him right before the game. And if that wasn't enough, we all know the story about Kurt Warner working in a grocery store before his Hall of Fame career as a quarterback. But Dick Vermeil is going to tell us how the Rams found Kurt Warner. We are also going to salute the late, great Vin Scully, an unparalleled baseball and football announcer. We're going to listen to his call of the catch in the 1981 NFC Championship game. He brought so much joy to the mic every time. And we're going to listen to that clip, and I'm also going to point out another aspect of his announcing that I think was part of his excellence. You know, the 70s and 80s were kind of a golden age of football announcing. When you have Pat Summerall, Dick Enberg, and lesser-known play-by-play guys like Charlie Jones and Don Crickey. And I I don't talk about off-the-field matters that much, but I am going to talk about the Dolphins situation because suspending an owner is historic. It's only happened three times in NFL history. How will that affect the Dolphins? I'm going to play a clip from... Dolphins quarterback Tua Tego Valoa that I think sums that up nicely. And to help celebrate Hall of Fame weekend, besides having that great Dick Vermeil interview, I'll give you a brief history of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All this and more coming up on the Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network and the Sports Map Radio app. Well, we lost a giant in broadcasting this past week as Vince Scully passed away. All of us as sports fans have memories of Vince Scully. And the older we are, the more memories that we have. He's certainly known as the Los Angeles Dodgers announcer, but he did do NFL games in the 1970s and early 80s. In fact, he called the 1981 NFC Championship game, made famous by Dwight Clark's catch, 
Hank Stram was his broadcasting partner that day. Let's take a listen to Vin Scully's call of the catch. Third and three. The right side, possibly. Montana. Looking, looking. Throwing in the end zone. Dwight Clark. It's a madhouse at Candlestick. With 51 seconds left. Dwight Clark is 6'4". He stands about 10 feet tall in this crowd's estimation. Oh, that's just beautiful. Beautiful to hear Vince Scully at the mic. And that clip is slightly edited for radio because of the length of it. But after Vince Scully had called the touchdown, he didn't say that it was a madhouse until after a full 30 seconds had passed. All you heard coming through the television was the crowd noise. And that was one thing that was so great about Vin Scully was that he allowed you to feel the moment while you were watching the game on television. I remember, I'm dating myself here, but I remember that game. I was about 10 years old. My parents were part of a bowling league and I was watching the game at the bowling alley and my jaw just hit the floor when that play happened. It was unbelievable. And I'll do my best to try to take you back into that era and just how amazing that play was at the time. That touchdown, along with the extra point, gave the 49ers a one-point lead with less than a minute left in the NFC Championship game. And they were playing the Dallas Cowboys. And the Cowboys have been in four out of the last five NFC Championship games. The 49ers, two years before that, had only won two games. It was only Bill Walsh's third season as head coach. They had a losing record his first two years. And they just kind of came from out of nowhere to have a 13-3 and record in 1981. So here's this upstart San Francisco 49ers team and they were going up against the established Cowboys. You know, the term David and Goliath gets used a lot. This really was, at the time, a David and Goliath matchup. So nobody really knew how the 49ers would really do in this game. And Joe Montana was in his first year as being the full-time starter for the full season. So nobody really knew what to expect of Joe Montana in a conference championship game at that point. Bill Walsh was not an icon. The 49ers didn't have Jerry Rice yet. But everybody knew the Cowboys could win a championship game. So the Cowboys scored 10 points in the fourth quarter. They had a six-point lead. And when San Francisco gets their kind of last chance to put together a game-winning drive... They get the ball inside their own 20. Montana had already thrown three interceptions at that point. And the 49ers had lost three fumbles. So San Francisco's turned the ball over six times at that point in the game. 
And while we think of Joe Montana as Joe Cool right now, and probably one of a handful of quarterbacks that you would pick to run a drive like that, at the time, he was a really young quarterback that nobody had seen in these situations. In today's world, it would be like the Jacksonville Jaguars being in the AFC Championship and Trevor Lawrence being in that same situation. You just wouldn't know what would happen. So for the 49ers to put together that kind of a drive after turning the ball over six times and for them to win on that kind of a play, it was just unbelievable. I remember my my jaw hit the floor. I was speechless. I was a speechless 10-year-old kid, eyes glazed over, looking at the television. Couldn't believe it. And the great thing about Vince Scully and that call was he just let it happen. He just let the moment be. He knew he didn't have to add anything to it. He knew he didn't have to shout. He knew the best thing to do was just to let the moment happen and just let it sink in because it was an incredible play and the circumstances around it made it just that more mind-blowing. Now, full disclosure, I was cheering for the Cowboys. I loved Drew Pearson as a kid. I loved Tony Hill. I loved Tony Dorsett. In fact, school picture day, one time in middle school, I was wearing one of those old Sears Cowboys jerseys that had Tony Dorsett's number on it. But pretty much like any other NFL fan watching the game, I was awestruck by the catch when it happened. And Vince Scully just let us all revel in the moment. And so I think that's one of the great overlooked things about Vince Scully as an announcer. He didn't feel the need to put his own stamp on a great play He just let the great play be what it was. Now, a couple of things that are forgotten about the catch game. After the catch and the 49ers had the lead and the Cowboys had less than a minute left on the clock, the Cowboys' Drew Pearson caught a long pass from quarterback Danny White. And he was in the open field 99% of the time when Drew Pearson was in the open field. It was a touchdown. Somehow... 49ers defensive back Eric Wright pulled him down from behind with a horse collar tackle, which was legal at the time. That play got the Cowboys close to midfield. And so it looked like the Cowboys had a really great chance to win that game, even after the catch. But the 49ers defensive line caused a strip sack fumble and San Francisco recovered. Another couple of side stories to the catch, Candlestick Park's field conditions were very difficult to play in, especially after it rained. And the NFL was very concerned about that for the playoffs. They brought in groundskeeper George Toma to work on Candlestick Park, and he shared stories about that in episode 60 of the Game Before the Money podcast, which was about the 40th anniversary of the catch. So George Thomas shared his stories. One thing that George Thomas shared was that the mayor of San Francisco at the time helped quite a bit to prepare the field. And I don't get into politics, but the mayor of San Francisco at the time was now Senator Dianne Feinstein. 
and she was kind enough to share her memories of preparing the field for the 1981 NFC Championship game via email through her press secretary for that episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. I gotta say, I was really impressed with the senator's knowledge of the history of Candlestick Park. And lastly, about Vince Scully and that game, that was the last NFL game that he broadcasted. And I heard him say in an interview on the Rich Eisen show that on the flight home, he thought about how great of a game it was and thought to himself, hey, can't go out on a higher note than that. So he decided to make that his last NFL game. Like I said at the top, that was just a golden age of announcing. Pat Summerall was another announcer that let you feel the moment. Other great announcers, of course, Kurt Gowdy calling the immaculate reception during the show intro. He was great. I could go on all day, but we've got to go to break. Coming up next, an interview with Hall of Fame coach Dick Vermeil on the game before the money. I had the pleasure of interviewing Dick Vermeil for episode 49 of the Game Before the Money podcast. It was a little bit before it was announced that he was a finalist for the Hall of Fame. In honor of him being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame this weekend, I wanted to share some of the raw interview clips with you. There's certainly a lot more that Coach Vermeil shared on the Game Before the Money podcast, but I wanted to share this out on the radio. In these clips, he's going to talk about trading for Ron Jaworski, the 1980 NFC Championship game. He's going to give some really great insight on Wilbur Montgomery's famous touchdown in the 1980 NFC Championship game, if you remember that as well as I do. You'll also hear a little bit about his time with the Rams and trading for Marshall Falk. And for you Kansas City fans, I asked him to sum up Lamar Hunt in just a few words. You'll want to hear what he has to say about Lamar Hunt, the founder of the Kansas City Chiefs. So get ready for some real one-on-one NFL history with Hall of Fame coach Dick Vermeil. You took the Eagles job in 76, and then you trade for Ron Jaworski in 77. Could you, could you talk about what, what kind of put him on your radar and, and what, what? Well, I was at the Rams when we drafted him. We drafted Ron in the second round, and I was there when he was a rookie. And I really liked, I liked his profile as a person, and I liked his talent as a potential player. And then after my first year at the Eagles, I traded the number one pick, Charlie Johnson, an all-pro tight end, for him straight across. I'd like to kind of talk about the Eagles' ascent under you. And, um, you know, from 76, I think you guys might have been 4-10. and 10. And then by 78, you're in the playoffs. How, how did that turn around? How did you turn, how did you turn that around? Well... We worked very, 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 very hard. You know, in those days, there was no limit to how much time you could practice, how many times you could have double days and all that kind of stuff. So we worked very, 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 very hard. And, you know, we didn't have a first, second, or third round pick my first year. We didn't have a first, second, or third round pick my second year. We didn't have a first and second round pick my third year. 
So the only way we were going to get better is to improve most of the players that we had because we weren't going to draft high-end quality players. So we tried to develop our own, and there were some guys in there that could really play that didn't know they could play as well as they could. How did you, how did you get that potential out of them? Great coaching staff, and we worked extremely hard, and we never took the pads off. And uh, there, there was talent there. You know, Bill Berge was an all-pro caliber player they had traded for before me. You know, and then, then I brought Jaworski in. I, we, because we didn't have a first, second, third round pick, we did a great job of picking fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth round players. There were sixteen rounds in those days. You certainly did an exceptional job with what you had to work with. You took over the Eagles before the 1976 season. They hadn't been to the playoffs since 1960. And by 1980, they were NFC champions and in Super Bowl 15. That NFC championship game, I mean, going up against the Cowboys, they had been to two recent Super Bowls. A lot of people expected them to win. And yet you pulled out a 27 to 10 victory. What was your plan going in, and, and what do you think made the difference in that game? Well, through the preparation in that week, all the way into where we left to go on the field, I didn't think there was any way Dallas could beat us. I had, I, to that day, and since that time, I have never been on the field with a team that was more easily read in terms of they were going to win the football game. Okay, that just, that you you could just, you know, in fact, George Allen spent some time during training camp, he used to come and spend a week with us in training camp, as my guest, and he was in our locker room pre-kickoff 1980s championship game, and we went out, he pulled me to a side and he said, I think there is no way the Dallas Cowboys can beat this football team in the frame of mind they're in right now. That's what, exactly what he told me. <laughs> <laughs> and it got it done, fortunately. Yeah. yeah, I mean, once that Wilbert Montgomery play happened, I mean, that must have yeah. boosted everybody's confidence. Yeah. That was a specific, that was a play we ran all the way, all the time, disguised from a different formation and, and used with different mechanics. On long yardage down, they would go to a nickel defense or even a six-pack defense and with the four good down linemen and uh, one linebacker in that. And... They would play man-to-man coverage and lock on man-to-man to all the spread. So we shifted out of a shotgun, which we had never done, and moved the quarterback in and shifted the backs to an eye in a spread formation and handed off a running play. We ran number one all year, okay? And it broke clean, and all the defenders were playing man coverage on wide receivers. And they didn't see him until they got downfield 10, 15 yards. So it was just one of those key game plan plays that worked as you dreamt it might. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't have worked any better. I gave the ball to the right guy, and I later made a football coach out of him. When I went back into coaching 14 years later, I brought him along with me. Oh, Wilbur Montgomery? Yeah. Was he on your Ram staff? Yeah, it's his first coaching job. Then he coached. From the day I took him, he coached 19 years in the league. And, and he was one of the, the players that you drafted once you got higher picks, right? 
No, no, he was like a seventh round pick, sixth or seventh round pick. Sixth or seventh out of Abilene Christian. Yes. You left coaching for a while, and then you came back to coach the Rams. What led to your decision to come back? They had offered me the job each time it was open after I left coaching. And I decided these people really wanted me. And I'd turned it down before. And if I turned it down this time, I'd be too old to ever go back. And no one, would, no one else was going to offer me a job. So I took it. You turned that team around. One of, one of the biggest uh, reasons was, was Kurt Warner. How, how did you find him? And, and oh, He was part of it. He was part of it. No question, he was part of it. But really, the first two years of the Ram program, we went back and built, rebuilt it like I did the Eagles my first couple of years, for a few years. We never took the pads off. We worked long hours. We worked double days, maximum, all the time, until the season started. And then we never took the pads off. And we worked very, very hard. We ended up with only nine guys off the original roster that went to the Super Bowl in three years. But those that went to play, and then going into my third year, we re, we reorganized re practice a little bit, cutting back on the pad work, cutting back on the hours and all that, and it, it freshened them up a little mentally. It, it, it improved their enthusiasm toward practice. I brought in Mike Martz and Al Saunders, and uh, these kind of guys, John Masco, to, on my coaching staff, and, and they made the first-round pick contribution, you know. And we brought in Torrey Holt, my, you know, two of the three first round picks we made in three years are Hall of Fame players. That's incredible. And Kurt Warner wasn't a draft pick. How did you find Kurt Warner? He was recommended to us by a coach I knew in, from California, and he wanted him to play with, he, he was going over and coaching the NFL Europe for the NFL, and he wanted Kurt because he had seen him in the arena league and liked him. So I brought him in and worked him out, liked the workout, and signed him. Charlie Army and John Becker, my two personnel people, were in favor of signing him, so we signed him. And then we sent him to Germany and had he played 10 games in Germany. Then we brought him back, and he was our third quarterback in 1998. We moved him to our number two quarterback in 1999, and then when Trent Green went down after bringing him in from the Redskins, uh, he took over as the starting quarterback and rewrote all the records. You also made a, a big trade for um, Marshall Falk. Yes. How did that? How did that come about? Oh, through my management, the president John Shaw, general manager uh, Jay Zygman, Charlie Army, and John Becker, and those guys. Uh, he was available, and we went after him and got him. And Jim Mora and I had worked together, and Jim Mora was the head coach at Indy. And on the final final decision part of it. I talked to Jim. Jim and I made an agreement and got it done. It, but all the all the framework and groundwork was done by John Shaw and Jay Zygmunt, Charlie Army, and, and John Becker. Your last coaching stop was in Kansas City, and you worked for Lamar Hunt, the founder of the team, credited with founding the American Football League. How would you describe Lamar Hunt? He's probably one of the three or four top human beings as a man I ever met in my life. I just thought he was unbelievable. We had a great relationship. All right. Many thanks again to Coach Vermeil and special congratulations to him. You can hear 
more from him. He's got a lot of great backstories before he became a head coach and how he was good friends with Bill Walsh. And he talks about his winning the Rose Bowl as head coach of UCLA. That's in episode 49 of the Game Before the Money podcast. You can also hear Hall of Famer Orlando Pace talk about what it was like to play for Dick Vermeil on the Rams. Coach Vermeil also talks about that greatest show on turf, Rams team. That's in episode 61 of the Game Before the Money podcast. So be sure to check both of those out. I'm Jackson Michael. This is the Game Before the Money on the Sports Map Radio Network. All right, it's Hall of Fame weekend, and I love Hall of Fame weekend. Celebrates the history of the game, the people who made the game great, and it also kicks off the NFL preseason with the Hall of Fame game. And so I wanted to give you a brief history of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You probably know that it is located in Canton, Ohio. What I'm guessing you didn't know is that the NFL originally awarded the Pro Football Hall of Fame site to Latrobe, Pennsylvania. That was somewhere in the late 1940s, early 1950s. But Latrobe's civic leaders didn't really take action on it. In the early 1950s, a sports writer in Latrobe wrote that the Hall of Fame idea barely got past the talking stage. In 1959, a newspaper in Canton, Ohio, published an article called Pro Football Needs a Hall of Fame and the Logical Site is Here. The owner of a company pledged a quarter of a million dollars and over $100,000 more was raised over a two-year period. After that, in 1961, NFL owners allotted the Hall of Fame to Canton, Ohio. The original building reportedly cost $600,000. Canton citizens raised about $400,000. Each NFL team reportedly donated $1,000. And the first enshrinement was in 1963. Burt Bell, father of Upton Bell, who you hear on this show sometimes, was inducted in that first class. So was Sammy Baugh, Curly Lambeau, George Hallis, Don Hudson, Bronco Nagurski, Red Grange, Jim Thorpe. I mean, this really reads like the greats of all time. There were 17 men inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame's first enshrinement. And again, that was in 19... 19- 63. A few fun facts about the Hall of Fame. Cal Hubbard, who won three straight NFL championships with the Packers, is the only person who so far is both in the Pro Football and Baseball Halls of Fame. He became an American League umpire after his NFL career ended. No Heisman Trophy winner made the Hall of Fame until 1985. And so far, the 1964 NFL draft 
produced the most Hall of Famers. There were 10 Hall of Famers selected in that draft. For more fun facts about the Hall of Fame and a little bit more about the history of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. Okay, so I don't talk about off-the-field matters much. I try to mostly avoid controversial topics because a lot of social media and talk radio already digs into it, and this show is really about the game. But I do find the Brian Flores lawsuit and the NFL punishing the Dolphins very, very interesting. I'm mostly going to read directly from the Flores lawsuit and the NFL press release that spelled out the reprimands to the Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, and Vice Chairman Bruce Beal. The team also lost two draft picks. So a six-month investigation ordered by the NFL after the Flores lawsuit was filed found the Miami Dolphins guilty of tampering. The NFL press release stated that the Dolphins violated the league's anti-tampering policy in three ways. Two of those violations involved discussions with Tom Brady, and one involved discussions with Sean Payton's agent. According to the release, the Dolphins had, quote, numerous and detailed, unquote, discussions with Brady during the 2019 season while he was still with the Patriots. The Dolphins also communicated with Brady and his agent late during the 2021 season. The NFL took away the Dolphins' first-round draft pick in 2023 and third-round draft pick in 2024. It's important to note that the Dolphins still have a first-round pick in 2023. That's as a result of a trade with San Francisco. Page 35 of the Flores lawsuit stated that at the end of the 2019 season, the Dolphins' owner wanted Flores to recruit, quote, a prominent quarterback, unquote, in violation of league tampering rules. Okay, in the NFL's press release, it stated that the Dolphins' vice chairman, Bruce Beal, spoke with Tom Brady from August of 2019 through that year's postseason and during the 2021 season. So that all lines up. The thing that's, that's really interesting to me here is that we probably would have never known about this if it wasn't for the Brian Flores case. I would give you a brief history of tampering in the NFL, but that would take a long time. A few examples. In 2008, the 49ers were stripped of a fifth-round pick after tampering with the Bears' Lance Briggs. In 2016, Kansas City lost two draft picks for tampering with Jeremy Macklin. In reading the NFL's anti-tampering rule, it's available online at nflcommunications.com. It seems like the league tried to take steps to reduce tampering in 2015. But still, the point is, I think the Dolphins' tampering probably would have never come to light without Brian Flores' lawsuit. And the Dolphins would have been left unpunished. But I'm not so convinced that the Dolphins were punished so much over the tampering than the second 
part of the investigation. The investigation also looked into the Brian Flores lawsuit allegation that was reported as possibly an offer of $100,000 to tank games, lose games on purpose in order to improve draft position. That allegation is on pages 34 and 35 of the lawsuit if you're scoring at home. Flores filing as of the Dolphins general manager said that Ross was, quote, mad after the Dolphins started winning because it, quote, was compromising the team's draft position, unquote. So here's what the NFL's press release had to say about that. Quote, on a number of occasions, Mr. Ross expressed his belief that the Dolphins' position in the upcoming 2020 draft should take priority over the team's one-loss record. Unquote. So that's an NFL owner saying that, and the league is saying that the NFL owner actually said that. Now that's a big deal. As for the $100,000 offer to tank games allegation, here's what the NFL's press release said about that. Quote, there are differing recollections about the wording, timing, and context. However phrased, such a comment was not intended or taken to be a serious offer, nor was the subject pursued in any respect by Mr. Ross or anyone else at the club, unquote. Okay, so the press release doesn't really deny that the comment was made. It said there are differing recollections about the wording, timing, and context. And it says it wasn't intended to be taken as a serious offer. I think this is a really big deal. Roger Goodell was quoted in the press release as saying that whether or not it was intended to be a joke, owners need to consider the risk of what they say can be misunderstood and have, quote, potential risk to the integrity of the game, unquote. So what I find here interesting is that the NFL really hasn't refuted what Flores said in his lawsuit, and they suspended the Dolphins' owner through October 17th. The NFL, according to the Sporting News, has only suspended three NFL owners in the history of the league. Eddie DeBartolo of the 49ers, Jim Ursay of the Colts, and now Stephen Ross of the Miami Dolphins. And so... A lot of the press release reads pretty heavy-handedly about the tampering. And that's covered in the first part of the press release. But what stands out to me is the second part of the press release under the heading, Tanking to Improve Draft Position. There isn't anything in there that disputes what the Flores lawsuit claims the Dolphins owner said. And right here in the press release, I'm going to read it to you right now. It says, 
quote, the investigation conclusively established the following, unquote. And then it says, number one, basically the Dolphins never lost on purpose during the 2019 season. But then it goes to number two and it says, quote, on a number of occasions during the 2019 season, Mr. Ross expressed his belief that the Dolphins' position in the upcoming 2020 draft should take priority over the team's win-loss record. These comments were made most frequently to team president and CEO Tom Garfinkel, unquote. Okay, so it says these comments that he was making were made most frequently to the team president and CEO. It goes on to say that those comments were also made to a couple of front office people besides Garfinkel and to Coach Flores. Now, if I could draw on the TV screen like Troy Aikman or Tony Romo does during games, I would circle that phrase most frequently because they're implying that these comments were made frequently and that they were made most frequently to the team president and CEO. So this wasn't just a one-off comment. They're saying that he said draft order was more important than winning frequently. It goes on to say that Coach Flores wrote to the senior club executives about his concerns about saying things like that. And that after that, quote, Mr. Ross no longer made any such comments to Coach Flores, unquote. It doesn't say that he stopped making those comments entirely, just no longer to Coach Flores. I don't know. Maybe he stopped them entirely, but I'm reading directly from the press release from NFLcommunications.com. How will this affect the Dolphins on the field? Let's listen to what Tua had to say. I have no idea about all the details other than what was shown on, on uh, TV uh, with the $1.5 million fine and something happening with Brady. I, I mean, I don't know all the details. This shows how really far removed this is from the players, and I don't expect it to affect the Dolphins on the field at all. Coming up, our Hall of Famer of the Week on the Game Before the Money. Hall of Fame weekend is always marked by the Hall of Fame game. The first Hall of Fame game was in 1962, the year before the Pro Football Hall of Fame had its first induction class. In the first Hall of Fame game, the Giants and Cardinals played to a 21-21 tie. This year, the Raiders defeated the Jaguars 27-11. A little trivia about that. That's the only time in the history of the Hall of Fame game that a team ended up with 11 points. Our Hall of Famer of the week is Paul Krause. Paul Krause, mostly known for his play as a safety for the Minnesota Vikings, but he also played for the team then known as the Washington Redskins. He's the NFL's all-time interception leader with 81. And nobody active is even close. Richard Sherman has 37 to lead active players. And after that is Jonathan Joseph with 32. You could add their totals together and it doesn't match Paul Krause. 
Krause played college football at Iowa. His college coach was Jerry Burns, who coincidentally later became head coach of the Minnesota Vikings. Krause played a little bit of offense in college as well as defense. He had six touchdown receptions in his senior year. He was drafted by Washington in 1964. Remember, a record 10 Hall of Famers were in that class. Krause made 12 interceptions his rookie year and finished second in Rookie of the Year voting behind his teammate Charlie Taylor, who was also in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The Vikings traded for Krause before the 1968 season. We all know the Purple People Eaters defensive line, but Krause was a huge part of that defense. He started in four Super Bowls for the Vikings and, of course, became the NFL's all-time interception leader. All right, it's August. That means preseason football. And excited to be here with you through the whole season. On the Game Before the Money, please check out thegamebeforethemoney.com and the Game Before the Money podcast. 